I'm Dan Carell with the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a bi-weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if this podcast is helpful to you, come join us at a Digital Commerce Alliance event. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, I'm coming back from a conference on Web3 at the University of Chicago. Uh, I was there to interview Ryan Miller, who is the former general counsel of FTX US. He's now at a place called Miller Strategies, where he advises companies on crypto and Web3 legal issues. Uh, Ryan and I had a fascinating conversation, and I'm just reflecting in this episode on some of my key takeaways from the conference overall. Uh, So mainly I want to talk about three things today. Um, One is, well, scandals and whether they have anything to do with Web3 or even with innovation. Another is risk and innovation and the different kinds of risk and how we respond to it and what that means for markets. And then third, global markets and innovation. How do global markets make things better, but sometimes worse? So stay tuned as we creep up and look over the precipice of the volcano at the risks and the possibilities of Web3 and cryptocurrencies. This episode of Commerce Code is brought to you by Augio, a global leader in engagement platform technologies that create compelling experiences, foster people connections, and cultivate brand advocates worldwide. With more than 45 years of experience, Augio empowers Fortune 500 companies to deliver extraordinary brand experiences for employees, consumers, channel partners, subscribers, and members. Fueled by a holistic engagement ecosystem across workplace engagement, experiential, social activation, customer loyalty, and digital asset experiences, Augio's mission is inspiring people to achieve more, one interaction, transaction, and experience at a time. Augio, engagement unleashed. Well, as I said up top, I went to the University of Chicago Web3 conference at their invitation so I could interview a guy named Ryan Miller. Ryan was the general counsel of FTX US, which is a important distinction since he was not living in a shack or whatever it was in the Bahamas with the leadership team of FTX Global. But he was brought in to try and build some infrastructure so that down the line, FTX would be able to have a more of a presence uh, and be more active in what is ultimately a little bit more and or differently regulated American market. It was in need. The company was, as it turned out in hindsight, more than anybody appreciated in need of some infrastructure controls, compliance stuff, et cetera. So Ryan's job was to put that all together. And he was sort of working towards the future date when it would all go live and it would be possible for FTX to have a bigger presence in the USA. Uh, I think that uh, without getting into too much of the details of the conversation that we had that summarizes, and you can imagine, you know, kind of both what his role was and then why he is out there doing his thing, advising companies, practicing law, whatever, and doesn't appear to have been in any real trouble over the FTX thing. Um, He indeed stuck around after it all blew up in order to help try and clean it up. 
and to work with uh, different players to to make it better and help them find things, et cetera. So a fascinating conversation, really interesting. And I wanted to reflect on a few things today in terms of, uh, you know, what, what I feel like I learned in the takeaway. So with luck, you'll get in 10 minutes a distillation of stuff that I spent about a day capturing. So three things, as I said up top, scandals, risk, separate from scandals, and then how global markets affect the way that we think about risk and how to manage it. So first, scandals. I was really interested professionally and to some extent personally in corporate scandals. I came into the legal and consulting and risk management world in about 1999, just in time for Enron to to mature into the meltdown that it then experienced in what, 2000, 2001? Of course, it wasn't just Enron. You had MCI WorldCom and more, more than I could probably remember in terms of different names. Nowadays, you've got Theranos, you know, in, in the middle in between those two, I guess you had Bernie Madoff somewhere along the way. You had, well, I guess through most of the time you had Lance Armstrong either being a problem or admitting to it or something in between, which and I would regard that kind of stuff as being, in essence, the same all around because there are, in my view, some common elements of these things. So I'll start with my takeaway from the conference. I mean, having spent a lot of time prepping for the interview with Ryan and really sort of looking more closely at FTX than I'd done in the past, my basic takeaway was that the FTX scandal had essentially nothing to do with Web3 or cryptocurrencies at all. You know, that was the medium through which this stuff all happened, to be sure. But it would have been the same scandal if they'd been trading foreign currencies or if they'd been trading some other made up thing or if they, you know, whatever were trading, uh, you know, securities would be the more common thing. If it was a sort of a Bernie Madoff type of a deal, it would have been basically the same. You know, the elements from my perspective of corporate scandals, if it's not really even corporate, let's just call it organizational scandals, are there is something new under the sun. There is somebody who is charismatic and incredibly confident who is leading the charge on the thing as the promoter, pitcher, uh, whatever. There are results that are so good in some people's experience that nobody close to the thing is really that interested in the details and they don't want to ask prying or rude questions about how things could be so good. Again, think Enron, Theranos, Lance Armstrong, you know, all that stuff. It's all the same FTX for sure. And then you've got, you know, investors self-selecting in. I mean, to be sure, there are loads of people who were definitely not investing in cryptocurrencies or maybe not, you know, getting involved with FTX or whatever. But the fact is they weren't involved. And so they just weren't involved, right? They were just backed out. And and so nobody there in that universe, they might have been the most skeptical people, but they weren't going to tear it apart. Sometimes what you have in these stories, and it certainly happened with Enron and it's happened in some other cases, but I'm, I'm not really aware that it was an important part of the FTX story is that you have the media, right? You've got, you think about, well, who has an incentive to take an interest, ask rude questions and go do the thing? You know, it's folks at the Wall Street Journal or, or the Financial Times or wherever. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they, they do it and they catch it and they make it happen. And that was the beginning of the end for Enron. But there's, it's a, low rate at which that stuff will happen. So these things can go on for a long time. The Madoff thing certainly did before people kind of figured it out. Actually, it went on for an astonishingly long time. In any event, you know, there really wasn't anything innate to crypto or Web3 that makes uh, this thing particularly likely to happen. And to me, the really interesting and surprising takeaway from all of it was how high Bitcoin was trading when all it was said and done through what was a pretty rough 2022-23 for that thing. And I haven't checked today what it's trading at, but Bitcoin 
did pretty well, right? And then the other stuff remains to be seen. So that's one main takeaway from this conversation, which is on the scandal front, you know, the characteristics really are quite universal and the FTX thing set up exactly the same way as other scandals do. And the fact that having to have something to do with cryptocurrencies was just really a, a detail that didn't end up mattering a whole lot. The cleanup on it wasn't really all that different than it would be if you were cleaning up like a Madoff type of situation. You just had a lot of stuff that was out there in the world that didn't actually exist all that much and uh, a lot of confusion and a lot of complexity in trying to make it uh, make it whole. So that's thing one. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, Vantage Score, and then we are going to come back and I want to talk about things two and three, risk and how we think about it and then how global markets affect all of this. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. So this conference was actually at the law school at the University of Chicago. Uh, So there was, uh, of course, a lot of focus on the legal questions and uncertainties around Web3 and cryptocurrency stuff. I said I wanted to talk about scandals first, but then turn to risk and innovation and and lawyers. Those two things really, first, are are just not that related. Law is influential for people who care about laws. And in that sense, lawyers are kind of uh, like auditors. And when auditors go in and, and audit a company, there's there's relatively little attention paid to the possibility that everything that's being given to them is fake or even that any of it is fake. Auditors are there to make sense of information on the underlying premise that the financial data, et cetera, that they're being given is is basically accurate. And in certain cases where they can, where they can, they'll point out things that look a little weird and problematic, et cetera. But they're not there to poke through to uh, discover a major scandal. And I think a lot of people figure that they probably are. That's part of the job, et cetera. Realistically, that's just not how it's going to work. When we think about lawyers and innovation and risk, the fact is they're presuming that they're dealing in good faith with people who are, for the most part, giving them accurate information and then they can help organizations navigate through legal contexts. Um, And so in that sense, you know, very often the lawyers in a story like the FTX one just don't end up really mattering a whole ton because it wasn't it wasn't subtle matters of you know whether uh, initial coin offering was really a security or not like that's not what was the problem in that case um, what's really going on though i think with lawyers and innovation and risk in normal organizations and the vast majority of them is you know lawyers are hired and they get paid to decrease uncertainty so that companies can make decisions and get stuff done lawyers are guilty of saying it depends all the time but it's true um, it does but then since quote unquote, it depends on facts and things. Lawyers get their certainty that they get paid to generate by saying no a lot, or at least lawyers that aren't particularly artful or one could say good at their jobs, say no a little too much. The difficulty with lawyers saying no, or at least injecting the fear of, well, if we don't know what's going to happen, then we better not do it, is that, of course, uh, competitors are likely to just go and do the thing, right? If the competitor goes and does the thing and the lawyers have in some way induced you not to do it at that point, it's, uh, you know, it's the CEO's call as to whether the organization could just go do it. 
there are just, I'm realizing I'm phrasing this abstractly, but there's just millions of examples of this and it's a daily occurrence. And the more the industry is sort of non-traditional or innovation driven, the more of a concern this, this is and the more of a daily reality is. One of the things I'll observe having worked with in-house lawyers and outside counsel, whatever my whole career is that only the CEO can really make that kind of a call. And so the conservative effect or the innovation stifling effect of lawyers is greater than what CEOs often appreciate because other people below them aren't particularly feeling at liberty to ignore the legal department's warnings. And so there's just a a tendency to sort of brush people back from the plate when lawyers even have a tone of voice that makes them concerned. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why big organizations so often spawn little ones. So when startups kind of hive out of a big, you know, five people leave some giant organization and they start something that's, you know, in the same vein, it's an innovation that the big company could have done. When they say they're more agile, part of what they're thinking, (laughs) if they've been around the block, is well, we don't have any lawyers. I mean, there's a lot of other things they don't have too, some of which are, are a liability and some of which are an asset. But at least at that scale, part of what they're saying is, look, we don't, you know, we, we don't have to worry about somebody saying no to a lot of stuff or, or having us looking askance or having a tone of voice that makes everybody else in the room worried. Another area, however, of uh, agility for small organizations uh, and innovators, whether they're in digital commerce or anywhere else, is that they're not big enough for Uh, the regulators, the Department of Justice, state agencies, whatever, to want to come after them, right? So it could well be that if those five people that left some giant organization to start a new thing, if they'd done the very same thing in the giant organization, that they might have immediately attracted the attention of uh, regulators, the Department of Justice, or whoever, because it's in some kind of an unclear space. And certainly if it's cryptocurrency related, it it is. But if they're a small organization, no, I mean, frankly, the regulator is never going to know who they are, or even if they do become aware of something, they're likely to say, look, it's uh, it's not worth our time. There's a decent chance that that'll happen. And this kind of symbiosis happens all the time. So innovations happen in small organizations that are sort of off the regulatory radar screen. After a while, it becomes clear or clear-ish that that's legal or legal-ish. Uh, and at that point, you know, some big company can scoop them up once it's been demonstrated that that's a possibility. And at that point, it becomes the in, in-house uh, and outside counsel's uh, problem to sort of do some clarifying. But for the most part, like it's been you know, proven, proof of concept, et cetera. The impact then and, and bringing it back to Web3 and cryptocurrency, whole day of a room full of like 80 lawyers there at Chicago talking through really basic stuff. Like, you know, what, what are these things? You know, how do you pay taxes on these things? There is uh, so much. I mean, uncertainty just doesn't even do it justice to total lack of clarity in this space as far as what the th- these things are and, and uh, how they'll be treated by the law. The word unprecedented is rarely warranted. So I guess I won't really use it here either. Somebody come up with some example of something in the past that nobody knew what to do with. Probably there's, there's quite a few things like that. But this is a pretty sizable marketplace that it's just a little bit bigger than you'd expect for something where people have no serious idea what the answers are to some of the most fundamental questions. We're getting some of them literally now through ongoing litigation and, and uh, et cetera, but that's not a terrific way to get the answer. The uh, better way to get an answer, which you know, not to be too nostalgic, but you could you could say the American founders had sort of imagined it would be like this, is legislatures, be they federal or state, could, you know, make a law and stuff.
That's the third thing I wanted to talk about, which is kind of the global nature of uh, digital commerce and to be sure cryptocurrencies and, and Web3 issues and how risk and legal issues kind of get managed there. So nobody's thought of a better way to think about the scope or application of a law than location, right? So in every episode, I think, I'm pretty sure, because I think I saw them all when I was like nine, of the Dukes of Hazard, Bo and Luke Duke drove across the county line, having blown something up on their righteous quest to help somebody or other. And Roscoe P. Coltrane was left standing at the side of the road near the county line, and he couldn't do anything because he didn't have jurisdiction. Look, I don't know if that's actually how it works in Georgia or wherever they're supposed to be, but the point is that location matters and jurisdiction is really a thing, and it really is, um, especially at the national, uh, international level. And so the issue with cryptocurrencies is, unlike Bo and Luke Duke, uh, it's totally unclear where they are like to begin with at all, because they're in multiple places at once, you could say, and also kind of nowhere, question mark, at the same time. And so where is this stuff, uh, who's in charge of it, and what laws apply are for sure a significant legal and policy problem. Uh, and it creates, I think, uh, some odd issues uh, inside organizations that are trying to be innovative. These are things that have come up, obviously, in areas like online gambling, I mean, privacy, needless to say, data privacy, et cetera, the regulation of oh, certain things online that are impolite to talk about in a podcast, but that are uh, in some cases not regulated much and in other cases absolutely regulated very closely. And, you know, the question is, well, where is it and what law applies? And so this comes back to, you know, the comments before about when, when lawyers are, uh, even if their tone of voice shifts, it can brush people back and away from their inclination to do something innovative and interesting. And then you add in, of course, the layer of, well, it might be legal here to do this, but you know, once you flip it onto the internet, it's de facto everywhere and it could be illegal in some other place. As often as not these days, it's uh, if, if here is the United States, if you imagine that being true, it's kind of flipped. And so uh, as often as not, it's well, it's either not legal here or it is not clear that it's legal here. That's the big, you know, big picture piece of legal advice on all things cryptocurrency and Web3. At this point, it's like, well, we don't really know what the legality is, but we can frame it in different ways. So everything depends. So that's the state of play in the United States for most things. But it might well be that it is legal is a little strong for anything in that space, but that there's a framework and a basis for thinking that it is permissible in other places. This, by the way, and without being an expert on the topic, is more or less why or one of the principal reasons why the FTX global leadership team was living in like huts or whatever it was in the Bahamas. I mean, it doesn't sound bad, does it? Right. So, you know, I could I could probably be persuaded uh, to do that myself without there being any legal justification. But that that was uh, at least one of the principal reasons was that the Bahamas had put into into place some kind of a framework that made them think from a legal perspective they might be OK but so oftentimes things will be legal somewhere else, which is why it's being done somewhere else, but not necessarily here in the U.S. So what's the impact or what are some things that are problematic about this in digital commerce from my perspective? Well, one kind of unexpected thing about the way things have evolved here is that a single player, if you want to call it a state or a country, can make a rule that, depending on factors, can end up just kind of ruling the world, right? And they just so it, in, in other words, it becomes the law everywhere because it's the rule there. In a sense, you could say privacy. That's basically happened. California 
Europe, Canada, some other players have you know put together privacy laws. It's not even clear once you've got a big player like Europe or California, one or the other, that puts a, a framework in place that you need anyone else to act. Because as soon as you are you know, on the web, you, of course, are going to have people in California um, who are consuming it. And as a practical matter, because of the economic significance of California, everybody's going to say, well, we probably need to be compliant with California's laws. At that point, it's you know you just everybody else can free ride off of off of them. Not necessarily a huge huge problem. Like if that were true, not totally sure the wisdom of turning over well anything perhaps uh, to the California legislature and just saying hey the whole world can live with it. But not necessarily a problem either. The difficulty is that it's not just California that's going to try and play right, and so you end up with overlapping and sort of weirdly inconsistent legislation in different places. So there's one problem with things being sort of products that are global in their nature. The moment that they go online, they're, they're everywhere all at once. The um, other concern with this thing, of course, is that at the same time, uh, there's a decent chance that there's no single player that can actually make a rule that works entirely uh, at all because these things can be evaded pretty easily. And so, uh, for example, online gambling, right, heavily limited, regulated by American states, in a way by the federal government. Um, and yet, I think, I've never tried it, pretty available, very legal, legally available in some channels, but even the, the quote unquote illegal stuff is available through others because you know there's workarounds and there's issues. So that's, that's one concern. There are other things that I, again, won't mention in the polite podcast company that I'm sure we have here on Commerce Code, but that are very important to regulate and are unfortunately, uh, apparently quite available on uh, the internet. Uh, which gets me to thing too, which is that because that's all true, if a regulator gets to where they really do want to actually regulate this stuff, like for real, the amount of energy and effort that they'd have to put out and the amount of collateral damage that they'll have to do, right, in terms of just, you know, shutting down essentially legitimate aspects of businesses or deterring people or causing lawyers, as I said in the previous section, to adopt a tone of voice that makes everybody in the organization clench and say, oh, gosh, maybe we shouldn't follow our competitor into that space. That's considerable, right? The authorities, if they really do want to shut something down, they're going to have to go a long way uh, in order to, to get it shut down. And so, you know, on the, the cryptocurrency Web3, whether it's NFTs or any of the innovations that we could see happening, um, certainly in our space. And so, you know, when we see more evolved versions of loyalty points that are transferable or that are done on the blockchain, et cetera, uh, I do think that you're going to have very real conversations about risk and concern, whether they're with lawyers per se or with people who have just come off of a conversation with a lawyer and they're starting to uh, get a little concerned about where things are headed. It'll be unfortunate when, and I think it's a when, not an if, some valuable and potentially powerful innovations in digital commerce are limited by concerns that we just don't know what the law is. The regulators are likely to proceed in the future as they are right now by doing nothing for long periods of time and then going hammer and tongs after a few players in order to make a point. They get everybody else to then back off from whatever it is that they're worried about and in a sort of an imperfect way get something done or are seen to have gotten something done. Uh, the trouble, of course, is there's a ton of value uh, in the good aspects of this and you know, we're perhaps paying too high of a price. Net of all of those observations and coming off of this conversation is it would be good, 
for uh, the legislative process to work probably at the federal level as opposed to the state level in the United States on matters of Web3, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, etc. But I'm not sure that we should uh, hold our breath for that to happen. As I've discussed here, there are incentives uh, or lack of incentives, both, you know, for nothing to continue to happen. DC is uniquely capable of doing tons of stuff while at the same time doing nothing somehow um, all at once. And I would expect in the near future anyway that that will continue to happen. Thanks for joining this episode of Commerce Code. And we've got interviews lined up with several DCA members across the coming weeks and look forward to having you join those conversations when they drop. Thanks. Commerce Code is sponsored by Pentadata, the all-in-one financial data API. Whether it is bank account data, credit card transaction data, or credit reports and credit scores, Pentadata has it all in one simple and easy-to-use API. With coverage of over 6,000 banks, over 200 million credit files, and 60 million merchants, you can get all the data you need for your apps at pentadatainc.com. Commerce Code is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practice sharing. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week. <laughs>